welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in discipleship, we grow in relationships, and we grow in Jesus Christ. This segment will be studying the book of Acts, where our risen Christ is made manifest in the early church. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single Sunday. So we will be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. But you know, so often as we, as we study topics, um, come across certain things, we don't always see the connection. Uh, how all of our theology connects to one another. But I assure you, that what we're seeing this morning, which doesn't seem attached at all to maybe the scripture at the first or, or what we even experienced during our family catechism time, it's, it's certainly all the same. This morning, I've entitled our message, God is known or, or may be known. That has everything to do with the fact that God has sent His only begotten Son to be God with us. It has everything to do with the incarnation. It has everything to do with the crucifixion where God gives us His greatest display of His own justice, of His own love and compassion and everything. He's the greatest revelation of God. This morning we see much of the same, how God is known, and yet we see it in this ministry of Paul uh, as he goes around preaching the gospel. I hope that you've been reading along, or that you do maybe after this morning, but today we are going to read verses 15 through 21, and hopefully from there see a larger pattern that's sort of being built, because again, that's been our goal is to show us how Christ is made manifest in the early church. So I invite you, if you've got your copy of God's Word and you're in Acts 17, to stand as we read from God's Word. I'll read from 15 to verse 21. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore dispute, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell 
or to hear some new thing. Father, we come to you and as we read of yet more debate in your scripture, as your truth is sent out and tested, God, we pray that you would make this gospel sure in our lives. God, that you would reveal it fully to us, that we might understand it, that we might apply it to our lives, that we might share it uh, accurately with our children, with our spouses, with our families, and with our community. God, we pray that we are moved this morning by your word to, to write doctrine and, Lord, to write practice. So, God, we ask that you do meet with us in your word. Lord, that you're glorified in this, that we might know you more fully and experience you more fully. God, that you would bear with us in our lack of understanding. Lord, that you would equip us for this ministry that we have to those you've put around, to, around us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So what we're reading of is some of Paul's missionary uh, journeys as he's going among synagogues and, and preaching the gospel to the Jews. Um, we know the gospel came first to the Jews. And so he's entered in all kinds of debate. Um, as he's gone, some of these towns that he leaves, he does so fleeing uh, from some resistance and some persecution of sorts. And he comes to Athens. Now Athens is in the heart of Greece. In the heart of paganism and Greek mythology and sexual morality um, or even the sexual morality is part of their pagan worship. And it's somewhat interesting because he's waiting in Athens or at least the way Luke records this text is that he's waiting in Athens uh, for the coming of his brothers before he really has the expectation of going into the synagogue, it seems. He's been going from synagogue to synagogue. And here he's waiting and already when he sees the idolatry around him, his spirit was stirred within him. The Christian desires the salvation of souls. We can't walk through this text. We can't understand our goals and our purpose as, as believers, as children of God in the household of the faith, as a body of Christ, or in any of these different uh, metaphors or images without having a desire for the souls of men. These are the worst of the group that Paul encounters, in, at least in this chapter, 
surrounded by debauchery and, and sacrifice and all kinds of hateful and godless, what we would call godless things. And it wasn't in the technical sense. They had all kinds of gods that they might worship. And even here, he's moved by the Spirit for the sake of these souls. It's the souls of men at stake here. Maybe these are some of the people that we get harsh uh, condemnation for. And, and really, the source of his compassion is not in them inherently, but he knows the value of a man made in God's image. And he knows apart from repentance, apart from the grace of God bestowed on them through Jesus Christ, he knows where this road goes. He knows every last one of these people in Athens, apart from Christ, will perish in hell eternally. It is a serious matter. Our gospel has urgency. Maybe this is like one of the ones that Christ uh, told John in Revelation when he's writing the letters to the churches. I know where you are, where Satan is seated. Surely this is something like that. Here in Athens, all of this godless worship and even sexual worship and, and idolatry. So friends, whenever we look upon our world, our nation, our community, some of our schools, some of our families, we may well understand how fallen they are. We may well understand their destination, their heathen culture about them. And yet, if your heart is not stirred within you, therein lies a great problem. You must desire the salvation of souls. We understand how profound the grace of God is. And so, yes, we desire for each one, we ask for God, if you could only, if you would only turn their hearts, take out this heart of stone. We desire, we desire the salvation of souls. Paul even later says in one of his letters to a church, he says, I wish that I was accursed if only my Jewish brothers would be saved. Do you think this way? Do you think this way about all of these heathens that surround us? All of these that are practicing hedonism, seeking their own selfish gain and their own pleasure? Or has good and wholesome doctrine driven you to cold debate? There's really only one thing left. Paul doesn't respond to this love that he has for the Athenians. He doesn't respond in trying to find his common ground. He doesn't try to show them that he's on their side. He doesn't validate his love for them through his actions. His response is to preach the gospel. His response is to reason in the Scriptures. 
So we know and we've heard, I remember hearing from Brother Chad, the repetition that we sometimes hear in Scripture when something's repeated over and again and how it sort of escalates the situation for us. Well, I would have you look in verse 2 where Paul in this manner went to them first in Thessalonica. He was there three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. For three weeks, he reasoned out of the Scriptures. They don't accept it. He comes to Berea in verse 11. They were more noble. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched what? The Scriptures daily whether those things were so. Paul moves immediately to the Scriptures. Here he comes to Athens. Has not yet received the help of his brothers that he sent his, his other uh, comrades to go and retrieve immediately. And we know who Timothy is. He's the pastor Paul set up in Ephesus. Look, I'm, I'm going to need his help here. He, here he is. He waits in Athens. And yet his heart is so stirred. What does Paul do? Verse 17. Therefore, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews, the devout persons, and even in the market. Are we to think that Paul went to the synagogue without the Scriptures all of the sudden? It seems very much like what he has done over and over again in each town. The Christian reasons from the Scriptures. It's, it's what we have. It is the truth. It is, it's what gives us the story of God among men. And so this is the source that we have and, and I hope that you're, you've seen a theme throughout our study of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, as the church is built, it is built on the Scriptures, on this Word of God. It is the foundation of the Apostles, this writing of the Apostles. So he reasons with them, and this escalates. It gets big quick. Paul's message goes viral, so to speak. And many would argue, and, and I just want to throw this out there, many would argue that uh, later as Paul reasons in the Areopagus, he goes from the natural revelation of the Greeks. I would argue the only reason he's standing in the Areopagus, speaking to them about the unknown God, is because he was preaching in the synagogue from the Scriptures. He reasoned from the Scriptures, and yet in the synagogues, they were so impacted by the godless, or not the godless, but the pagan culture around them, even within the synagogues, that this word gets out. It's affected even their own philosophy as the Jews, which we know these were probably more Hellenistic Jews who had taken Greek thought. They were impacted by some of this uh, Greek Epicurean and Stoic philosophy that it quickly makes it without. And so his message goes abroad. It's, it's shaking, shaking the foundation of this town. It's because he reasoned from the Scriptures in the synagogues and he's asked, 
we, we got to hear more of this. You've, cha- you've said some seriously challenging things. We're bringing you to the Areopagus. We're going to bring you before everybody. We're, we're going to put you on the stage uh, of before all of the Greeks. Now I want to take a minute and I, and I want to assess these Epicureans and these Stoics because it's important. Here's what we're talking about. Paul's been brought before the Greek stage. And in any other circumstance, it's important to us who it is he's talking to. Sometimes in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus spoke with the Pharisees. And that was important to us because he wasn't speaking to the Sadducees or to the Greeks, to the Romans or anything else. No, he was speaking to the one sect of the Jews that gave a darn about the Scriptures. So it was important who his audience was. And so now it's important. Luke says, listen, there were these certain philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. So we, we need to learn a little something about them. So this is going to involve a, a little bit of teaching. And we're barely going to scratch the surface. I will sort of put a plug in here uh, between Brother Chad, myself, and, and Chris. This is some, going to be some of our study in the coming year on Sunday evenings. We're going to try to dive into some of these philosophies and see the way that they've reared their ugly head again in our day. But who are the Epicureans and the Stoics? They were enemies, for one. They were adversaries, of opponents of one another in philosophical thought, and yet they were united against the gospel. That's important. Both of these take their line of thought from Aristotle. Just bear with me here. I'm, I'm, I'm building a framework for you with Aristotle, who was a student of Plato. Now, Platonism gave certain advantage to the spread of the gospel because they believed in an other, a one, something outside of the creation, forms. Aristotle, his student, came to disagree with this, what I call in in theology... I call a downward theology. It begins with something bigger than us and we understand this and we're looking down trying to understand how what we see came to be. Aristotle came against this and he took things from the upward theology. And we can benefit from Aristotle because even in this day, now believe this or not, Aristotle was the one who supposed things were made of atoms too small to see. Revolutionary thought, isn't it? They wouldn't discover that for at least another thousand, you know what, 1,500 years or 1,900 years. So important. They, they do help us, but they have this upward theology and they come to deny the existence of a God or something else. Now, out of this, you get some of those, there's overlaps, you get the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans may have held on to some of these mystical beliefs of old where they valued experience. Experience is what is is most to us. And so they were hedonists. They sought pleasure. This is the greatest cause or purpose of man. But but I want to make clear it wasn't physical pleasure. It wasn't sexual pleasure. No, it was pleasure of the mind. This is the highest good. We want to find a higher power of self. Now, 
Let's just make a note here, and I want to acknowledge if you are one who's on Facebook, you are very apt in our day to see a self-professing Christian who puts uh, some of these pagan images of the human with these ascending orbs in this higher power of self that is a freedom of the mind that comes by meditation. This is pertinent. These Epicureans heard what went down in the synagogue because there was overlap, because it had infiltrated the people of God. It's pertinent. So it's mental pleasure, experience, personal experience drove all of this. Well, the Stoics were on the opposite side of this. Still Aristotle, all those same things. Okay, denial of God and, and, and what else is what this would lead to. But the Stoics might have carried some of the Gnosticism, this higher knowledge, saying there's a requirement of higher knowledge because the purpose of man for them was virtue. It was virtue that came by logic. So instead of I'm going to pursue what's best for me, they said, listen, it's logical. We're going to carry out and think through what's best for the whole and establish a virtue. This really gives us humanism. Now, no one's calling themselves a Stoic or, or, or a believer in Stoicism or Epicureanism, but we do hear people say, I guess, uh, man, that's epic. Or that's, you look so Stoic. That's what the, these words come from. And, and these, I think, on our Sunday nights, we'll see how much we are forced to interact with them. What does Paul do with these people? These are enemies opposed to one another. Greatest rivals in the Areopagus. And now they've got a guy who's just cut down their very foundation. He said things that neither one of them have answers for. How does Paul respond? Instead, now this is a big debate. If someone listens to this later, I want you to be gracious with me. But as I study this text... I see Aristotle's a problem for the church. I see an upward theology being a problem with the church. Whenever I see Paul come to them, he says, listen, I'll address you folks. I'll address you worldly philosophers. He goes immediately to God. Now is this, some say this is a, a way in which they have seen God revealed in creation. That they were right somewhere in their philosophy thinking starting with man. The way I see it, he's turned them on, them, on their head. Listen, you've got all these gods. Obviously, you realize there's a different starting point. There's something greater than yourself that you haven't got figured out. I've gone by the altar of the unknown God it's because you haven't got it right. This philosophy is not enough. But you know it. There's something in the heart of your belief that you're not able to not deny and that is this God that is supreme. That's why he says later in the chapter, I'm just going to encourage you to do your own study. But later in the chapter he says, look, even your own poets have said we're the offspring of God. It's in verse 28. How do you think you're supposed to be children of God if your gods are made of gold and silver? It's rubbish. Start with God. 
Recognize there is a God who is supreme, who is sovereign. There is something other than. There is an otherworldly. There is the, crea- the creation, the creature, and the creator. Friends, this is important. How many people have you met who said, well, if, if uh, God created everything, who created God? This is a bottom-up philosophy. That's a bottom-up philosophy. You have to understand, oh no, well, okay, who created God? Well, then who created Him? You've got to start from the top down. God is there, He exists, He is sovereign, He is supreme, and that's where it starts. You need an outside force. Now, had they just listened to Paul when he reasoned from the Scriptures, they would understand all of that. That's why we go to Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. No question, God. That's where the Bible starts with God. That's where we start. It's with God. So all of this is very important. It's absolute. Whenever we understand all that we read about of Jesus Christ, whenever we teach His, His life, His substitutionary atonement, you know, in the crucifixion, the resurrection, the newness of life, when we read all these things, it's huge. When we understand God, when all of these things are put to rest in the Scriptures. And yet I see one more warning. I love a good debate, and indeed we've seen a lot of it, and even Chad has preached on some, some wholesome debate among the church. It's a good thing. It's where we refine ourselves as we are sharpened by one another when we spend our time in the Word. But Luke gives us a detail. Whenever he's recording all this that's going on in this debate between Paul and the Athenians. As as Paul is carrying on these things and he's about to unleash a, a, a very solid argument that is irrefutable. Luke says for... You need to know this snippet here in verse 21. Something you need to know about the Athenians and these strangers, all these that were gathered here, they spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. These are people who eat up good gossip, new philosophy. New age thinking. When you talk as we seek to evangelize, you will meet people who are convinced they have figured it out. Listen, they've been struggling for ages on this, but I'm going to tell you how it really is right now. Something's wrong already. This is, this is the easy answer for Muhammad. The entire world, all of history is wrong. I just got something special. Just listen to me and you'll be all right. Which, by the way, is the same story for Joseph Smith. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. We have an age-old truth 
It started with God. All this is here because God revealed it. We don't know nothing apart from God. All this is here because God created. All this is here because God spoke. All this is here because He gave His prophets. All this is here because He sent His Son. He reveals Himself. And, and, and friends, Christians, apologists, those that are speaking with those around you, as you're answering the difficult question from your little children late at night, as you're, as you're trying to shepherd your wife with the, the hard issues that she endures, the anxieties that she has to endure daily, as you talk with your skeptical co-worker, there are some that engage in endless debate. The issue can never be settled for them. And here I think there is a warning. Let's not be Athenians in the matter. Let's not, in, let's not engage in useless quarreling. Let's not cast out brothers over poor definitions of terms. Because again... What hinges on this entire debate is the salvation of souls. There's a purpose. God did not do all of these things and His Son was not sent for us that we might debate over it. And yet that debate is necessary, but only so far as we see God's purpose fulfilled in Christ and saves the souls of men. You have got to meet this end. Your debate must tie in to the redemptive purposes of God. At the bottom of the bulletin, I've included there a passage that I've used and referenced a number of times. I've put it there in writing for you. Of the writing of many books, there's no end. And much study is the weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep His commandments. It's the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12, 12, and 13. That's been clarified for us. We've been given the command that summates all of this. We love God and we love our neighbor. How is it that that's carried out in the life of a Christian? Go, therefore, make disciples. Of all the nations, teaching them all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it requires the scriptures. We do, we teach. All of this is very important. So I want to caution you. I want to petition you to engage. Engage the world that's around you. Engage the family member who disagrees with you. Call them to the Scriptures. We don't, we don't have such the authority that on, on, on our own two feet... Uh, that we can challenge some other worldly authority or historical tradition. But we have the Word of God. 
Draw these people to the Word of God. Challenge them to think. If there are those as you gather and as you celebrate this week, uh, understand if you want to celebrate the incarnation of the Son, tease that out. Ask that family, what? How? Can we see the God-man, an infant, is fully God and fully man? How can we see one who was born to die? Let our hearts yearn for people because God desired to make Himself known. So we should desire to make Him known. And we should never leave off the preaching of this word daily in our homes. And caution, I want to caution you. As as we meet those disagreements, do so in love. Call them to the scriptures. Call them to the one authority that stood this test of time. and, And seek the salvation of their soul. Our goal is not to make enemies with those we desire to be brothers. We don't call brother one who we've made an enemy. So contend, contend in all love and compassion that God would be known, that He'd be known fully and accurately, not partially. Not, not, not naturally like the Stoics and the Epicureans. In part a wisdom that comes from above. And for our sake, for our benefit, we have the Spirit as our help to do so and to speak to the hearts of men where we cannot. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you that we have such the timely message and we see the example set before us in Paul, one who could reason in the Scriptures, one who could, who could impart wisdom of God that transcends our own existence. God even undoubtedly as He would had to have reasoned with the Bereans on the nature of Christ's coming. As indeed the very promise that we read this morning was likely on His lips that You would send one miraculously as a virgin that God would dwell among His people. Father, this is the promise we have that we have received in Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that You act through us thoroughly and lovingly and boldly until we may dwell with You in Your full majesty at Your return. God, I pray that You would move our hearts today. That we would be unsettled in in our own comfortable corner knowing we ourselves are saved. 
Help us as we gather together to engage our families, to sharpen them, to impart to them a wisdom that they don't yet have. God, let us see the greatest way for us to love our neighbor in sharing Christ. God, we pray that everything we do here at New Life works to this end. Lord, we yearn to see souls saved. We yearn to see the increase of disciples. We yearn to see the maturity of the saints. We yearn to see brothers and sisters built up as evangelists in our community. We desire to see you glorified. And God, we desire to see you fully known among us. And so God, we just praise you and thank you that you have revealed yourself. Lord, that you have created, that you have sent your word, that you sent your son. Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself still in our day. That there is yet hope for our children, for our spouse, for our community. And so, Father, we pray that you make yourself manifest in us as you have promised to do. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in discipleship, grow in relationships, and grow in Jesus Christ. Subscribe so you don't miss a single sermon and come and grow with us.